being here today. Take your Bibles, go to the book of Acts, chapter 2. And actually, we're going to be in John, chapter 16, before we get to Acts 2. And I'll deal with all that in just a moment. But what a week, huh? So it started off with me being on vacation. What a great week. We should start every week that way. And um, we went from there to the end of the week where we, as a country, celebrated Veterans Day. And let me just say, if you happen to be part of the life of our church and you are a veteran, we are most appreciative of you and your service. Thank you for that. And um, tied to that, I've, I decided to break my self-imposed uh, distancing from social media this week for a couple of reasons, one of which I'll get to as we transition into the sermon. But uh, part of that for Veterans Day, I decided that rather than just have everybody who's a veteran stand up in a service, I thought it might be better for us to put the word out and let's let other people weigh in on it because there's no way in the world that I could have known who of our church has served in one way or another. And sure enough, I, I opened it up over the day on Friday and people were, you know, said, oh, what about such and such and my husband or that kind of thing. And so um, it, it's good to see that. And as a church, we, we appreciate your service, those of you who have done it that way. So, but the other part of my uh, breaking of my self-imposed distancing from social media was tied to kind of a preemptive strike before the elections. If you're not aware of it, America had, had just went through an election season. I'm sure that you probably slept through that, didn't know that was going on. Um, and I was like 99% of the rest of America in that I did not anticipate the results of the presidential election the way it came out. And so I thought I would kind of get a preemptive strike with some spiritual... Uh, grounding before the election. And so on social media, I put it out this way. I did it actually through Twitter and it automatically pushes to my Facebook. So you may have seen it either one of those places, but here's my election prayer for 2016 in case you didn't get it. God, if America elects people that you would not choose, please keep Christians from shaming your name by our responses. So let me kind of maybe flesh that out a little bit for you so you can see why I said it that way because, again, I did not anticipate it would go the way it did. And I was really concerned about many Christians uh, and how we might respond to a verdict that was not really, or not a verdict, but uh, maybe it is a verdict, who knows, um, that uh, to a result that we weren't anticipating. Let, let me turn it for you a little bit. And I, this is not intended to be about politics this morning, but I do want to get here on the front end of it because I think it makes the point in the best possible way today. It's fresh in our thinking. If some of those people who are rioting, wait a minute, excuse me, protesting, if some of those people who are protesting the results of the election were known to you, and maybe they are, but if they were known to you and you knew that they took a visible vocal stand for Jesus Christ, 
And then you see them out on the streets, torching cars, destroying property, those kind of things. What would that do to the validity of their witness about Jesus Christ? In other words, if those same people who are protesting a decision by other people and are clearly agitated over that, if they came to you and said, you need to put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, would that ring true for you? Would he be handling their lives in a peaceful way or would they be living out of the emotion that is there? You see, the reality is, I posted that on social media expecting that I would be trying to talk Christians off of ledges and may still need to do some of that if your candidate happens to be the one that won. What we say about Jesus Christ and how we handle ourselves with people as it relates to what we say about Jesus Christ has to be brought into lockstep agreement. We cannot say one thing out of our mouths and then live a different way with that. Here's how I really want to get it. Here's the essential thrust of what I want to get across this morning. So if you have to leave early, here's the sermon in a nutshell. Engaging people with the gospel requires divine intervention if it is to be done effectively. Engaging people with the good news of Jesus Christ requires divine intervention if we're going to do that effectively. But you see, here's the deal. We have generations worth of church history that has tried to engage people with the gospel. That's a stretch. Uh, But we've done it out of our own clever devices or gimmicks. Or our own timing. A lot of those kind of things we'll get to as we work our way through this. So as we come to the book of Acts chapter 2, and we've been here for a while now, and we're working our way into the book of Acts as we talk about our responsibility to engage our society with the good news of Jesus Christ. What better place to see that in action than in the early church? And so as we moved out of chapter 1 into chapter 2, and that chapter 2 comes the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes in this flagrant way. Today we pick up that story as Simon Peter steps into the mix, and Peter will give us some things that will help us, I think, to be better at doing this and being more effective in the process of doing it. But in order for us to get to that the way I want us to see chapter 2 of Acts, Uh, We need to go backwards and and lay some foundation work that actually Jesus laid for us. So in John chapter 16, we pick this up where Jesus is now on his way out. Maybe that's a good way to say it. He has gathered his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. From the cross, after he is killed there, he will go to the grave. And out of the grave, he will resurrect, and then he eventually will ascend back to heaven. And so he's beginning to try to let his disciples in on that. And he's, well, he's actually been trying to do that for a while. They're just like us, a little bit dense. And so Jesus comes in John 14, 15, 16, and he's laying it out in a way for them that gives them something to hang on to. And it bothers them. Their hearts are troubled. So in John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And so we get into this extended deal. But in this passage, in John chapter 16, verses 5 and following, we find Jesus now as he gives us some directions, actually his disciples, some kind of a clue 
about what he's going to do to help them out when he leaves. So follow along with me as I read John chapter 16. It actually picks up the last part of verse 4 where he says, I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Now verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled my heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper... Now, in my translation, as we find on the screen here, the word helper there is capitalized. Jesus is using that word as a, a, a name, a synonym, if you will, for the name Holy Spirit. And Jesus is now going to step into an explanation for them about the Holy Spirit, the one he sends as the helper, as the comforter, as the one who is called alongside them to work them through life in a divine kind of assistance. And then he's going to give some of the roles, some of the functions, if you will, Although Holy Spirit, and I'll highlight those as we get to them. So we back up to that verse again, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, or do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, here's the first one of those functions that we're going to find played out over in Acts chapter 2. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Here's the next one. And when the, whole, uh, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And here's the third one now, verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so with those three main statements, he will convict, he will guide you in all truth, and he will glorify me. With those three things Jesus lays out for us, And for his disciples there, the role of the Holy Spirit. And the role of the Holy Spirit is active and powerful in the life of his disciples. So when we get to Acts chapter 2, and now we go and we'll read there. And I'm going to go ahead and read it there. And then at the end of it, Spencer, I'm going to jump to verse 36. But we pick up reading today's text in Acts chapter 2. And we get to verse 22, and what's happened before that is the Holy Spirit now has arrived, has shown up, we might say. And we've found these tongues as a fire, and we've heard that they spoke, and people heard in their own language. It's this audible, visible outpouring of God's Spirit that changes everything. And in the process of that, people who are there recognize that something's going on. It's one of my favorite verses of the, old, I mean, of, the, of the New Testament because there, the outside people, not the church people, but the other ones who are gathered there, look at the church people with all that God is doing and their conclusion is those church people have been drinking again. 
I wonder if that's ever been said. No, I don't want to know if it's been said of you or not. So let's go ahead in verse 22. So in that context, with all of that going on, Simon Peter now steps up. I am amazed. I, I started to say intrigued, but it's much deeper than that for me. I am amazed that this fisherman who's been with Jesus capitalizes on the moment like he does. And it is that amazement that triggers this message for me today. Simon Peter models the influence of the Holy Spirit and the activity of the Holy Spirit in his life that Jesus promised in John 16. So in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the uh, definitive the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would not set one of his or that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore now or know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so what we find with this, the Holy Spirit now speaks through Simon Peter into a group of people who are ready, primed, we might say, for the gospel message. I wonder, I'm intrigued now, now the intrigued is the right word, at how Simon Peter, this fisherman, is able to draw some of the lines that he draws in the amount of time that he had to do it. I think what we find is that Simon Peter, under the direct involvement of the Holy Spirit in his life provides an example for us about how to get this right. So let me start with it. We're going to give three basic examples, I guess is the way to say it. Here's the first one. If we're going to get it right in taking the good news to a post-Christian America, you understand that term? It is the term that puts its finger on the pulse of an American society that has no use for religion. Well, not for religion necessarily, for Christianity specifically. 
And we still have our pockets, but no longer are we the way we used to be, as many people like to say it. In this society in which we live that is rejecting wholesale the good news of Jesus Christ, how do we get it right? So the first part of it, here's the first principle. We need to focus on being engaged with the Holy Spirit in our own lives. Let me turn that and put it right square in your lap. You, I, need to be focused on being engaged with the Holy Spirit in our own lives. This is where I go back to John chapter 14. And I've already said enough of it, so I'll just kind of mention it and kind of move on here. But we, what we find with Simon Peter at this point is an extension of what's been happening in his life. Because when Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and ascends back to heaven, that culminates what had been three, actually more than three years that these disciples had spent with Jesus in close fellowship. They left everything of their previous life and walked with him and learned from him. And so for over three years, he was their life. No wonder in John chapter 14, their hearts are troubled. Jesus is now starting to use language that points to the fact that everything that they had left behind all of a sudden now is going to come haunting them. If you leave Jesus, then what about us? If we turn that just a little bit, what we find is the intimate relationship that those guys had with Jesus as he taught them, as he walked with them. They deepened during that time their dependence on him. So when he ascends back to heaven, there's this vacuum that is created. And so Jesus in 16 says, the Holy Spirit's coming, and if I don't leave then we can't have him here, and they still don't get all of that. Let me see if I can pull that down on a church-wide level, what I'm trying to get at and why it's so important to us. The church I served before I came here, First Baptist Church of Edinburgh, um, at the time that this event that I'm talking about happened, had been in the city of Edinburgh for 95 years, roughly. Not long after I came here, they did their 100th anniversary. I went back and was part of that celebration with them, and Uh, So somewhere between 95 and 100 years, in a staff meeting, my youth minister, Nick was his name, he's their pastor now, uh, but we were having a discussion about trying to figure out just how effective our church was in the community. The reason for that was that that church was beginning to catch the vision about making a difference in the community. And so to try to get one of those benchmarks is, okay, this is where we are. This is what we're operating from. We together decided, and I think actually it was his idea. Uh, If it was a good idea, it was mine. If it was bad, it had to be his. But that's not true. It was a good idea, and it was his totally. But here was the idea. He said, why don't you let me go and take a couple of teenagers with me, and we'll go set up a table at one of the entrances to Walmart in our city, and we'll set up a camera with that, And ask people as they're coming into Walmart one basic question and ask them to just kind of reflect on that for us. Here's a good rule of thumb for you. Don't ask the public for information you don't want to know. Here's the question. Because we did it. And he went and he sat up and put together these hours worth of videotape. And we went through it together. We started showing clips of it in church. Here's the basic question. If somehow... First Baptist Church of Edinburgh closed its doors tomorrow, what would be the impact on the community? Let me twist it for our purposes. 
if we did that and we went down to Walmart or you know, a restaurant or market basket and we went and said into this community, if Crestwood closed its doors tomorrow, what would be the impact on our community? So here's the results that we got. I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was easily 80 to 90% of everybody we asked in a four-hour time frame where he was set up there. 80 to 90% of the people responded to the question, if First Baptist Edinburgh was no longer in the community, community, what would be the impact? Those people said, I didn't realize we had a Baptist church in Edinburgh. 95 years in the community. And no footprint. So let's wear that as a church. If we did that in our community, what would be the, what would be the answer that people would give? If Crestwood shut its doors tomorrow, what impact would that have? Here's another way to ask it. What entrepreneurial kind of person out there would see that something's missing, and so they would start up some kind of an enterprise to fill the gap that we left, if anybody. Okay, so I'm less concerned about the corporate deal, and let's put it right square in your lap this morning. If the Holy Spirit somehow, and he's not going to do this, okay, so we're just playing what if, what if now. But if the Holy Spirit said and effectively took the position with you going, okay, what, I'm done with you. As of right now, I'm no longer going to be part of your life. If he did that, how long would it take you to notice he was gone? I I happen to believe that one of the reasons that we live in a post-Christian America is because we have peddled, marketed, sold a humanistic Christianity. It's all about the benefit. It's all about me doing the right things. And it's less about the Holy Spirit as constant in my life. If he said, I'm done with you, how long would it take you to recognize that he was gone? One of the things that we get with the Holy Spirit in our life is we get comfort. And so when things are not going our way, we get comfort. We get clarity about things. We get guidance in how we're to live our life out. I I have regular conversations with people going, I'm just not sure where God is. What, What should I do? How do I know what God wants me to do? Those are all questions that cause me to say to them, tap into the Holy Spirit who indwells you. And as we find it again in this passage, Simon Peter steps up into a situation, but the only way he can have the right words to say there or recognize the right time to say them is when the Holy Spirit, who is part of his life, says to him, okay, now's the moment, stand up. I would even say to you that the chances of him even being in the right place when this happened would be much less if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I have big work for you to do today. 
This direction that we find here is critical in the Christian life. And the timing that you and I have and that we face as we deal with other people, especially as we're trying to engage them to make disciples, as we've said, to be witnesses of Christ, timing is critical. I used to, my dad taught me how to work on cars, uh, car engines a long time ago. Back in the day before computers governed everything about how that engine runs, I'm not going to get into all of the, the, the nuances of it, but I will say this to you, that if the timing is not exactly right for an engine, and that spark doesn't hit at just the right moment to ignite that vapor cloud of fuel, it will not run. And so often in the Christian life, we're operating secularly as if it's just a title that we wear and we push the Holy Spirit's influence aside in our life and we miss opportunities because the timing's not right for us. And sometimes we take that out into an opportunity to tell somebody about Christ and they're not ready for it. So timing is as much about doing the right time as not doing the wrong time. But the only way you know that is when the Holy Spirit steps into that mix. So that just pushes us into acknowledging the the obvious here, and that is that we personally must be engaged with the Holy Spirit in our own lives. But that pushes us to the second thing that I think Simon Peter teaches us here. And this one's hard for us. This one's really hard for us. Here's the principle. We need to stop trying to be the Holy Spirit to other people. In other words, we need to let him do his work. John 16, verse 8, that first one of the things that it says is that the Holy Spirit responsibility is he will convict people. But you see, this is the part that we really kind of hate to give up. Because, I mean, let's be honest. Don't you like being the Holy Spirit convicting other people of their sin? Okay, self-imposed exile from Facebook. Uh, But I broke that this week, and so I've been on it a little bit more. And I happened to look at one this morning, and I'm so glad that I did. Because there's this this meme, and this, uh, I just, I love it, okay? You just need to know that I love this. And uh, if it's offensive to you, I'm sorry, but uh, you should, never mind. Uh, So the picture is of a guy who could have been on the cover of a Motley Crue album. Someone don't act like you don't know Motley Crue albums. But um, so I don't want a show of hands on who has tattoos and who doesn't. Okay. I will tell you, I don't have any tattoos. My wife may or may not. But uh, uh, it's not, I don't have any, but it's not because I'm against them. Okay. and so this, this tattoo, this guy has tattoos on his face and his neck. And I'm thinking, wow, there's some money tied up in that. Um, but I bring it to our attention because I think this nails the reality of our day. One of the reasons we live in a post-Christian society. The statement says, sometimes... The nicest people you meet are covered in tattoos. It's okay to say amen. If you're a tattoo person, it's okay. Sometimes the nicest people you meet are covered in tattoos. At the bottom it says, and sometimes the most judgmental people you meet go to church on Sundays. 
I'm telling you, that's truth. That is straight up truth. I'm concerned of a Christian society or a Christian subculture is probably the better way to say it in our day that is willing at the drop of a hat to post something in social media or to have a conversation with some of their inside friends who throws rocks at somebody else because those somebody else's happen to practice the sin that we love to hate and excuse themselves for the hatred spirit that Jesus condemns for somebody who would do that very thing. You see, we cherry pick the sins that we're against. We don't like, uh, okay, I'm going to get political for a second here, uh, and no apologies here, but how in the world, I listened to the presidential debates, how in the world anybody could suggest that it is an acceptable practice for late-term abortions? I don't get that. I just don't get that, and if you get it, you think you want to talk to me about it, I'll listen to you some, but I don't get it. I'm not going to get that, I don't think. There's something about... (laughs) the sanctity of human life that we need to get, right? But here's the deal. Christians line up by the droves to throw off on people who believe that's okay. And Jesus doesn't give us the freedom to do that. And we could take any number of social issues where we as a Christian uh, subculture have said that's against, well, okay, let's just be honest. Much of that stuff we stake positions on because we believe Scripture says this is not right kind of behavior. But we excuse that wicked heart that drives us in the way we address people on the other side. That's why I did that election prayer before the results came in because I thought that most most of America would be on the other side of that whole thing. And I was afraid that Christians would be pulling the same behavior that the other side is pulling now. Because we're capable of exactly that. So the principle here is that if we're going to engage people, real, live people, many of whom have value systems that are vastly different from that that Jesus says this is what life is about. If we're going to engage them, we better be careful about the way we present ourselves with them. And historically, and I, this, is, this is one of those hyperbole statements, so, okay. Uh, historically, at least in my lifetime, Christians have done evangelism with very little regard for the other person. And so we figuratively smack them upside the head with the Bible and say, you better turn or you're going to burn. You're going to be smoking more and enjoying it less. Which communicates hatred for the other person. So Simon Peter models this for us, I think. He comes into this and he he doesn't pull punches. He points his finger. Y'all are the ones who crucified Jesus. But here's the clarification for us. 
He's not about going off on them here. There's a couple of statements in there where he highlights the fact, y'all are the ones who killed Jesus, but the rest of it is about Jesus. It's not about them. He continually holds Jesus up in the course of this conversation. He does it from their own experience. He goes backwards with David, the the king of kings, as far as they're concerned at that point. And he quotes him and he reinterprets some of what David has to say as it relates to a Messiah now. And he does all of that stuff, but he does it in the process of holding Jesus up to them. You want to be effective reaching people for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Just push Jesus to them. Keep your own stuff your own stuff, and hold Jesus up to them. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says this over there, verse 8, chapter 16, we find it throughout what Jesus has to say. The whole focus of the Holy Spirit is not about himself or yourself, it's about Jesus. He will glorify me, Jesus said. All right, so it's quiet and I'm getting a little too worked up, so let's move on here. Let me, let me wrap that up this way. Properly engaging the Holy Spirit in our own lives and then people for the good or for the gospel's sake demands that we exercise discernment in how we talk about sin. And just so you know, the Holy Spirit is excellent at conviction. I know he's been convicting me of sin for decades now. I know he's good at that. I'll hear it from him much sooner than I'll hear it from you about my own sin. And by the way, so does your next door neighbor. All right, so let's move on. Lastly, the third thing that I think Peter gives us here as an example that fulfills what we find Jesus saying is the role of the Holy Spirit in John 16 is that we need to be available to partner with the Holy Spirit when it comes to engaging other people. In other words... And I kind of tipped my hat to this earlier, so let me just kind of state it flagrantly here. I, the, the, the amazement that I have of this is how Simon Peter can take information that is part of their religious heritage. But he's a fisherman. He didn't come from the halls of theology and theological studies at the University of Jerusalem in the first century. He's a fisherman. He's just like us. He's just a guy. And yet, because of his walk with Jesus, and because of the Holy Spirit working in his life, Simon Peter is able to tap into truth that is there. It's just not on the surface and evident. And so he takes that episode out of David in the words of David, and he interprets them in a way that that first century Jewish crowd could hear and would hear. Well, they couldn't deny what they had seen and heard in the tongues and the, everybody hearing it in his own language and all that kind of stuff. He couldn't deny all, they couldn't deny all that stuff. They'd seen all that stuff, but somebody had to make sense of that. And so what is it about Simon Peter that helps him to know, hey, this is the moment. Step up and start talking. And when you start talking, say these things. One of the reasons I think many of us, I'm sure of this because I've had many conversations with people that that we're reluctant to talk to somebody else about our own faith is, first of all, because sometimes our own faith is just a theoretical framework rather than a personal experience. 
and that engaging the Holy Spirit is lacking, and so we feel like we have to have the right argument and all that kind of stuff. But we don't think we know what to say. Here's what you say. Whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to say in the moment. But you see, that's hard work. We'd much rather have a canned speech that we can throw out there. Simon Peter stands up, but in the process of the standing up, we have this undergirding truth that says he's there at the right moment. He knows when it's time to speak up. He says the right things. This is not about Simon Peter being a sharp guy. This is about the Holy Spirit working through him and him being available. Can you trace in your own life times when you said something that caused you to go, Ooh, that's good. Now, most of us think that all the time about what we say. But let me just pull the covers back for you for me as a preacher, all right? I don't know about these other guys who preach, but um, I, I recognize, I fully recognize that I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And, you know, um, <laughs> there's certainly great preachers out there of whom I am not one. But here's, here's a reality for me, Okay. Every once in a while, I mean, every week, I listen to the sermons. I go back once we post them, and I listen to them because I always want to get better, and uh, so I force myself to listen to them again. And uh, you know, occasionally while I'm listening to them, I think to myself, "Oh, that's good." <laughs> um, and just so you know, that's not a prideful. St- Actually, it's quite the opposite, right? Because I'm surprised when I say something that's smart. Okay. But what I want you to hear from that is I find myself saying things in sermons that I never would have dreamed saying. And I believe that that's the Holy Spirit doing what he did with Simon Peter here and what he does in pulpit after pulpit after pulpit across our world today and through the ages when someone stands up and the Holy Spirit says, I will use you today to get the good news of Jesus Christ In front of people. None of us, especially me, are smart enough to get that right. But you don't have to be. Because the Holy Spirit is excellent at pointing people to Jesus. So what he wants from us is a vessel with a head and a heart that says, I'm yours, use me the way you want. And if we'll do that, we might just work our way out of a post-Christian society. Because I still believe that all those people out there who have moved beyond the church and moved beyond Christianity desperately need life. And only Jesus gives that life. And so Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, I'm going to send my spirit and he's going to finish the job with you. And that same Holy Spirit available to us indwells us according to Scripture. When we place our trust for life in Jesus Christ and none other, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God invades us. And his function is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. 
and to give you discernment in life and to comfort you in all those things that we're beginning to see in just about one chapter's worth of the book of Acts. So the question is, how's it going with you? Let me put it to you this way, because you are, in many ways, the presence of God in the life of those people in your circle. How long would it take them to know that God stepped out if God stopped speaking to you? God has strategically placed you in a circle of people who desperately need life. They don't need religion. They don't need a four-point argument on why they ought to be Christian. They need Jesus. And the Holy Spirit specializes in using you to put Jesus right in front of them. So engage. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we ask that you complete this message, finish it out, drive it home, and then give us a consuming passion to be used for your glory, that people would see evidence of you alive in us. Change our world. And if you can use us to do it, please do. In Jesus' name, amen.